This week on the Pietist Schoolman Podcast, we wrap up Season 4 as our World Wars Tour arrives in southern Germany. Welcome to the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Chris Gertz, joined by Sam Mulberry. Uh, so, Sam, this is the end of our travelogue. Our, our fourth season is a very short season, but I think a very fun season. I yeah, this, this. Has been, this has been fun. It gets me excited. We're leaving in less than a month. We'll be in some of these places. Yep, so, yeah. Yeah. so again, if you're new to this, if you somehow joined us at the end, uh, Sam and I teach... What uh, a weird thing to jump in on I know, right here. I, I don't know. Like, go back to the beginning and then maybe start over again. But just to remind everyone, Sam and I teach a three-week travel course uh, every other January for Bethel University that goes to England, Belgium, France, and Germany uh, about World War One, and then a little bit about World War II, the Holocaust at the end. And then we're doing an adult version of that trip with, right now we've got 22 people going with us next June, so kind of a half-length version of, um, of the same trip, with maybe a little bit more World War Two. So uh, we've been to London, we've been to the battlefields and cemeteries of the former Western Front in Normandy, and last week we were in Paris, we ate a lot of good food, saw some beautiful artwork, walked in the footsteps of expat poets, and now, Sam, we come to the Bavarian capital of Munich. So one of the largest cities in Germany, uh, a Catholic center of Germany historically, and uh, why do we go there? Uh, we go there. Uh, actually, I think there's, well, this is really, it's weird that I'm answering this question, but no, I, I will answer why I think we go there. I think we go there uh, in part because when we were in Ypres, mm-hmm. that is where, when we're, we talked about um, Langemark. Langemark. And Langemark is the the German cemetery in Ypres, and that is really to the the youth of Bavaria. Uh, you know, are, are are sent to die in uh, uh, to die in Ypres. So so it it kind of closes that circle, and we'll talk about a memorial in in uh, in Munich that that really closes that circle exactly. to a certain degree. But it's also as we're thinking about the post war period. So we were just in Paris doing kind of post war expats. This is this is going to be the birthplace of the Nazi Party. Right. I mean, it's it sounds creepy, but in a sense, what we're doing is we're following Adolf Hitler. So um, we actually read a little bit of Mein Kampf when we're at Ypres. He um, talks about being there in 1915. And later, uh, I think, I don't know if we have it in the reading packet this year, but sometimes we read his story of finding out that the war has ended. He was actually in the hospital. He'd been gassed and he's crushed by this. And he has to go back to Munich, kind of start from scratch. Um, so if you don't know the story, Adolf Hitler uh, was a decorated veteran of World War One. Um, is recruited by a German military intelligence to infiltrate a new kind of right-wing populist. I don't know if it fits the spectrum. There's a party in Munich called the German Workers' Party, the DAP. And so Hitler is assigned to infiltrate it. And as we'll talk about later, there's a, a fractious, chaotic time. There's a lot of upheaval, a lot of extremist parties. And short version, Hitler ends up taking over this party, make it, makes it into the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Uh, we read their manifesto from 1920 when it really was still a workers' party. And, of course, this is beginning then of, of the rise of Nazism, and that takes us to World War II and the Holocaust. So I like it because it really is a continuation of the story of World War I. Uh, and I, I, there's, a, I think, a really interesting World War I memorial in Munich that, that we'll talk about later. But it leads really naturally into some of the most important aftershocks of that war and then into World War II. Now, at the same time, there's always the little bit of me that thinks, well, we wouldn't have to end here. There's some other places we should go. So I thought I'd mention 
like I, I first thought about this trip six years ago and a few other places I thought about ending. So Sam, let me know if we should change our schedule. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, the closest would be Nuremberg. So we actually sometimes go there. We have an off day in the J-term trip. Uh, we've been there a couple of times. There's, uh, you know, it was destroyed by bombing during the war, but there's a rebuilt medieval city with the old um, uh, imperial palace that you can go to. Um, it's got a few interesting sites, but most famously, it's where the Nazi party rallies were held, and they took those old rally grounds and turned them into a really interesting museum, a, a National Socialist Documentation Center. And so the connection to World War One would be a little bit trickier, but it certainly would be a good place to do World War Two. We have other Europe trips at Bethel that go to Nuremberg. Um, so like that, that'd be a pretty easy. It's a couple hour train ride from Munich. Kind of the bigger leap would have been to go to Berlin. And I think the main reason I didn't do that was it, it, I was kind of committed to taking a, tr a long train ride for reasons I'll get back to. And Berlin would be a long train ride from Paris. It would have been overnight. I... At the same time, it would be pretty easy to fly from Paris to Berlin, and we could do that, and that would make a lot of sense. You could certainly talk about World War I. Um, there's a revolution at the very end of World War I in Berlin. You got a new government. We could talk about the Weimar Republic and what it looks like, go to the Reichstag, and then obviously there'd be Nazi stuff and World War II stuff to do. So I mean, I almost feel like that probably would be a cool thing to try at some point. Uh, and then the weirder one that I thought about was Prague, uh, which... Again, that would probably be a flight, not a train from Paris. But I like the idea of Prague, partly because it's just an interesting city that's relatively untouched by World War II. So you can dive a little bit more deeply into medieval and early modern history. You could do Reformation stuff. But it also would underscore that World War I does affect Central and Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. you got a Czechoslovak Declaration of Independence at the end of World War I as the Austro-Hungarian Empire falls apart. And then Prague, obviously, is the epicenter of the crisis that leads to World War II. So in Munich, we actually go to the house where the Munich conference was held in 1938, where appeasement you know, reached its height or, or nadir. Um, but Prague would be a great place to do that as well. And um, it's also not too far from concentration camps. So you could do that kind of day trip as well. So Prague would be another interesting kind of place. You could end a trip like this that's a little bit less predictable. So, and is there anywhere else, Sam, that you would love to go if we were doing, like, if we had a few more days in Europe or if we stretched the, the June trip, like, where, where would you love to, to take us? I mean, I think, I think it would be, this would be more than that, but I think to go into Russia would be really mm -hmm. interesting just because I've never been there. And I think that's a, thinking about the war from that direction. And I also think, you know, I, I, I think that would be, that would be pretty fascinating. I, I'd love to go to, to the Dardanelles. So if we want oh, yeah. to do this thing on Gallipoli, just oh. so we could go there would be very cool. I mean, what we really should think about is doing like a kind of, um, you know, almost like a mirror image of the trip, but it was focused on like Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Yeah. Like yeah. you could do yeah, some Sarajevo, of the same yeah, topics. Yeah. You know, we could talk about commemoration, but like it would be a vastly different trip. It would be places we aren't as familiar with. Um, yeah, so we'll mark that down for to come back to later. <laughs> okay, but be it be that as it may, we actually do end the trip in Munich, and I think we're glad we're due. It's a city we enjoy. Students. It's also like it. small. I mean, I small. think that that's if you're going on this trip. Uh, we talked last time about how sometimes students don't love Paris and partially because of its size and because of the language. Uh, Munich is going to have the same language issue. Bit. I mean, yep. it's a different language, but it's right. going to have the same issue, but it's so much smaller. You can do most of the parts of Munich we go to, you can do on foot. Yep. We um, don't even buy it. I mean, there's a good maps transit system. We don't even bother buying it because it's a five-minute walk everywhere. There yeah. you go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think English is a bit more commonly spoken. Mm -hmm. Like, you can almost assume people you talk to of most ages will understand English. I, 
I would say I think most people, speaking as somebody who doesn't speak French or German, I think more of the anxiety comes not from this person doesn't speak English, but is this person going to be upset at me yeah. that I'm speaking English? And right. you get a little bit of that. In, I mean, they're they're cool, but they're yeah. also a little bit like, come yeah. on. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, so we're going to Munich, and so as usual, we're going to uh, go through our four M's. Now, we're going to go through these, and then we actually want to wrap up with some concluding thoughts about travel more generally. But let's start with our meal, museum, memorial, and masterpiece, and... Well, I don't think Munich will ever rival Paris's reputation for the culinary arts. I think we want to start with meal again because we both enjoy eating in Munich. Yeah, and I need to say, uh, my wife has been on this trip a couple times. She's not going this year. She, uh, and last time was the first time she stayed for the whole trip mm-hmm. and went to Munich. And uh, I was surprised how much she actually said the food was – that was her favorite meals were, oh, were okay. Munich meals, which is kind of surprising because my wife loves Paris and loves yeah. London. So, um, Well, we made a point to get some different things too. Like we, had, we went to a nice pizza place and we – yeah, but you're going to start with any kind of more classically yeah, Munchner yeah, sort of meal. Yeah, and, and actually, as we as we get into meals, there's another question I want to ask mm-hmm. you, and this, this I think, ties most closely into meals. This was a harder question to ask when you were talking about the Nazi party. So meals is a good place yep. to ask this, which is my sense from you and when we went here with uh, you and your wife – um, is that this is a chance for you to tap into your Germanness a little bit to go? I mean, yeah. just being in Germany, like the food is a thing that kind of excites you, right? And just and and maybe this is more so for Katie as well. Yep. I, I will say I also have German roots, but they're not. I don't identify with them as much. Yeah, no. So exactly. I'm curious. I'm curious to hear you talk about being in Germany and thinking about you know. The name Gertz sure sounds German to me. Exactly. And, I mean, it's interesting because I married into a mostly German family, especially on my wife's mother's side, that would go to Germany often. And, like, they think about going to Germany the way that my relatives think about going to Sweden. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, like, it's 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 almost a pilgrimage, right? And, like, I grew up in a German family that had no affection for Germany whatsoever, right? Like, I mean, German went away around the year 1900. English names started with my great-grandfather's generation, you know, they lived in Milwaukee and then St. Paul, which have a lot of German-Americans, but it was a difficult time to be a German-American. They sure. didn't take pride in that. They had assimilated. And I never grew up with any kind of admiration for my German roots. And instead, I became somebody who did 20th century history and the Holocaust. And so I had very little admiration for my what, German what, what, roots. And, and, I, and what I want to ask about is, like, I will say when I have gone to places, so I've been to Norway, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit Sweden, been to Norway, been to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Those are probably the places I maybe identify my identity more, even though I'm probably as German and as Czech. I've never been to Prague, but I'm sure I would love it. Um, Like, there's a weird sense of like, oh, this feels right. I mean, do you feel that in Germany? No, not at all. I felt it in Sweden. I've only been to Scandinavia once, but I actually went to a wedding in Norway. But I went up through Copenhagen via Stockholm, and I remember taking this overnight train and waking up at like 2 in the morning, and there was a full moon, and I could see the pine trees and the lakes. And I feel like I it's, it was like I was in northern Minnesota. I was home. Spent a day in Stockholm. I, it just felt exactly right. And, you know, I, if I could, I'd do a Fulbright, like, semester right. in Sweden. Right. Like, it would feel – in Germany – I mean, I just don't even have a sense of place. Like, I finally found out where my people came from. The Garretses actually come from what then was part of Prussia, a town called, it's called Torn, mm-hmm. or Tobrun. So it's now Poland because of what happens after World War One and World War Two. But like, I don't know anything about it. Okay. Like, I could go there. I wouldn't have any sense of affection for it. And Munich is a very different part of Germany. All I have is food. Right. So circle us back to this topic, which is... I have inherited that kind of taste. My dad and I love German food. When I was on sabbatical in Virginia, we actually made a point of stopping at a German restaurant in Stanton, Virginia. <laughs> like, I mean, 
that's where I kind of feel like, oh yeah, salad brats and and you know and the various bursts that we'll eat. Like this feels right, and it's really not that different. All right, Swedish. so so let's get to the okay. meals. So so my my number one meal, uh, my favorite meal, is, and this is you can get. Almost anywhere you go in oh, Munich, yeah. any beer hall you go to, there's some good ones. But anyone you go to, um, some kind of roast meat. Now, I'm, I like mm-hmm. duck and then um, and and pork. Pork's good too. I, I try to avoid the pork knuckle. I wasn't yeah. as big of a fan of that, but like just like a roast pork. But that's not that's not the meat. That's not the the no. purpose of this meal. The purpose of this meal is they have these round potato oh, dumplings incredible. that have like 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 a crouton, crouton or something. Yeah, and yeah. it's there. They look kind of weird on the plate because they it, at first they look like they're like a like a boiled potato yeah, yeah. then you realize that's not a potato that's like shredded potato made into this dumpling and they're th- I, i'm i always save them to the end and there you can kind of like soak them in the juices yeah. of your meat and it's i apologize to vegetarians it's awesome it it's is. so good I, i'm a little bit jealous of your choice because i would say exactly the same thing and i remember coming home and thinking, I've got to make this meal. There, there is like uh, kind of roast pork. I could do that, all right. Apparently, the trick is you leave the peel on the onion to help give a little darker color. Mm-hmm. I could not. I still have never been able to actually reproduce the dumpling. So I don't know if you have to kind of freeze it first. But like, I have a hard time with boy. Like, I've tried making nochi, and I can't do yeah. that very well either. And it's weird because every place makes it. So yeah. like, it's got to be a thing you can make. Oh yeah. But, but like, I don't. Yeah, if I you didn't... went to a grocery store. I'm sure we just find it somewhere. And, yeah. And, yeah. So yeah. I'm sorry, people live in Munich. Like you probably do this all the time, or you hate them. But we think they're amazing. They're, yeah, they're amazing. And I would say my honorable mention would be one of the things that I love about Munich, and this is in part because we live in the climate we live in, is that Munich does feel wintry, but it's not super cold. So they still have an outdoor market yeah, in the Munich, market. and and so I, it's worth having a lunch where you just go to the market and oh, you yeah. you know get a, a a brat on on a good round bun, not yeah, like a yeah. not like a Minnesota brat no, bun, but no. like. And, and slather it with mustard, and like, I'm good. That's also it's one. Delightful. It's a great lunch just to walk around the market and just eat different things. Get some fruit. Get some, mm-hmm. I like I like you know, pickles. Lots I of pickles. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, that that's great. I'm going to do a very uh, different one. And one way I don't think I had tried the first two or three times we did this, and then we kind of stumbled into this little kind of a bakery cafe called the Richart on the Marienplatz uh, in the old city of Munich. And found a table and didn't really know what to get. And then there's this thing called Kaiserschmarrn. <laughs> or Kaiser, yeah, Kaiserschmarrn. I mean, I still don't really know how to describe it. In some ways, like for Americans, think funnel cake. Right. It's basically dough that's been fried. But it's really, I think, I don't know if you described it this way, Sam, or I came up with this for a student, but it kind of feels like a deconstructed pancake. It's exactly what, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you top it with... Right, I think applesauce is kind of traditional. I think maybe we had plum or prune kind of topping. Mm-hmm. So it's usually like it's almost like if you've had a Dutch pancake, a panikuken, the kind of things you would top that with, you top Kaiserschmarrn with, and it's just delicious. And like a Sunday brunch or like after church kind mm-hmm. of thing, it's filling and it's warm, and you just kind of feel at home. So I, again, I've not tried making this, and maybe I shouldn't because it tasted really good. You'll be there in a month in or so, so. So yeah, check out Kaiserschmarrn. All right, let's move on to masterpieces. Uh, and I think we're both again going to be a little bit creative. We'll get to an art museum before we're done, and Sam, I'll kind of let you talk about um, masterpieces there if you'd like. But I'm going to talk about a literary masterpiece, and I'm really cheating here because it has no direct connection to Munich itself. But on the train ride, the reason I wanted us to take a train ride is that on that ride, we have students read a couple of excerpts from a novel called Storm of Steel by a German soldier, uh, an officer named Ernst Jünger. So he is not, I think he's originally from Württemberg, if I remember right. He's not Bavarian. He's not from Munich. 
But he fights in some of these battles and writes one of the first great memoirs of the war. In Storm of Steel, we get my vote for the most powerful memoir of the war. It's got the kind of naturalism that you would associate with the other great memoirs. The difference is that Junger loved the war. I mean, mean, he loved and hated it, but he loved it. He loved what it made him into. And he comes out of it as this unreconstructed German nationalist. And the fascinating thing that we show to students is this gets paired away. Like when he first does it in England, there's this long thing about rolling. He's been wounded. He's on a hospital train that takes like two weeks to get back. And he rolls through these fields, and he's filled with this love for his homeland. And it's been honed by the experience of the Crucible of War. That gets taken away. So by the 1960s, it basically ends with a description of the fields, and then it's done. Like Mm. clearly, because he's not a Nazi, but he's a deeply conservative nationalist. uh, and, And... so the other place I thought about going that would have been ridiculous for a group of 25 is there's an Ernst Jünger house, a museum in a tiny little Swabian village that's right down. It's called Langen and Schlingen. And Schlingen. And like, there's nothing there. Like, it, but it's, I mean, it's a couple hours west of Munich. And it's one of the great works of war literature and deeply disturbing, but also very powerful. And he went on to write a lot more. He actually lived into the 1990s. He was over 100 when he died. And it was a, a great writer who kind of surpassed those origins. But this is still the novel everyone remembers. Even even left-wing pacifists love Storm of Steel, or at least they admire it. So that's my masterpiece. All right, my masterpiece, and this is where I'm going to get a little weird, is I'm actually going to pick the the what mm. is the the best um, World War One memorial. Maybe one of the best World War One memorials that we see on our tour. I'm going to put as the masterpiece mm-hmm. and not the memorial, mm-hmm. uh, and that is in the the Hof Garden is the 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 World War One memorial, um, and it is for Bavaria. It's for Bavaria, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. And it is so interesting because the, the the trick you often will play with students is you'll say, okay, now point it out when you see it, and we'll walk right past it, and no one will no one will point to it. Can I tell my story? About yes, please so do. So we scouted this trip, my wife and I, and it was January, so like the day ends quickly, and I had kind of put this off until like four in the afternoon, and it was dusk, and I walked right by it three times because the coloring of it even made it hard to see, and I didn't know where I was. And, and I this is a tiny realized. little memorial we're talking about, right? Uh, no, no, it's big. No, it's, it's actually quite pretty big. huge, right in front of the state government building. Like it's not hidden anywhere. Yeah. And and, w- and and the reason that 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 can happen is that it's instead of being this thing that rises up to the heavens, it goes down. Yeah. So you walk down into this memorial, and it is a it's. In the same way, Langemark has this, you know, crossing over into the river Styx, like this is walking into the tomb. Mm-hmm. You know, so you walk down and there's this structure of these these uh, blocks. So you can't actually even see what's in it until right. you get into it. And so you, so you walk down these stairs and there's hedges. And then you go in between these blocks and you walk into this small space um, that has a, a bronze s- soldier. I think yep. it was originally granted, and then they redid it in bronze. I think you're right. Um, yeah. uh, this bronze soldier, and it's called the the sleeping soldier, but yep. it's also the dead soldier. Like mm-hmm. it's the so you're you're to see the memorial, you have to walk into the tomb, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it is the Germans know how to do this. <laughs> like do. it's really powerful. Like like, like I'm it's. It's moving. Well, because the whole thing, mostly when we show this, it's on a Nazi walking tour. Yeah. Like the very next thing we see after this is a memorial to the White Rose, the students who resisted Nazism. You know, I mean, like, so students at this point are primed not to be sympathetic to, like, the claims of German Mm -hmm. nationalism. And yet you come and you can't help but 
feel affected in some way. And there, there's very little there's very little in terms of inscription or things like that. And is that because some stuff was taken down? Well, it was destroyed. destroyed so Munich yeah. is bombed. So, I, I mean, one connection, you've mentioned Langemark. This is like a mirror image. So there are all these names of dead Bavarian soldiers who died at Ypres at Langemark. And, and for the first, like, 15-some years of this memorial's life, they were at this memorial. They were in... Um, I think there were like brass plates on the walls of the crypt, essentially, and they were destroyed. And the American military government was very suspicious of this, and they never replaced them. Mm-hmm. But for a while, like it was actually like there was this thread connecting these two kind of sacred um, Hades-like sites, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and so so the 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 two there's a couple inscriptions, but the two of them, one just says for our dead," yep. and the yep. other says "they will rise." Yeah. Which is Christian, yeah, you know, it's, or it's resurrection, it's, or it's ominous. Oh yeah. And, and and what's interesting is is when we the first time we went to this. So I remember being down in the tomb and thinking about that they will rise, and I was thinking about it in terms of like resurrection, uh, heaven, things like that. And then we walked up the other staircase, and as and you're down low, and it, you're walking up towards this government building, and there's this huge bronze statue of. Uh, I can't remember who it's. It's an oh, old Bavarian it's king, part of the Wittelsbach dynasty. Yeah, but it's this martial medieval kind yeah. of warrior king, and, and and it's sort of like in the same way at Vimy, there's Mother Canada. Yeah. This is like Father Bavaria yeah. saying they will rise. Like it's you, you get it puts you into that mindset of oh, this is a way. There's a way to read this memorial contextualized in what's around it that can take on multiple meanings because mm-hmm. it could be. You know, in the same way Mother Canada weeps for her lost, it could be that or it could be here is Father Bavaria saying, let's... Yeah, ready to command his legion. Yeah, like it's yeah. it's amazing. I would love to know if anyone here actually lives in Munich. Like, has there... I mean, because there was a lot of debate around this um, under the American occupation and then early in the 1950s under the new West German government and the Christian Social Union was in power. Because the statue, the sleeping soldier, had actually been in a much more public spot on the Odeonsplatz by where the war ministry used to be. And the Americans didn't like that because they thought it would become a kind of Nazi shrine or a neo-Nazi shrine. And so the thought was actually, well, we'll hide it in the crypt. And I do kind of wonder if it hasn't been effective. Like, I wonder if it's one of those memorials that's it's in a very public spot in a main park in front of a state government building and people just don't notice it in the same way. Like, it's kind of analogous to if you go to downtown St. Paul in Minnesota, the state capitol is right there, and there are a bunch of war memorials right there on the mall, and I would guess maybe less than 1% of Minnesotans have ever seen them, mm-hmm. have any idea they're there. People walk by them, people jog past it, and I wonder if that's not how this the, the Bavarian War Memorial functions. Mm-hmm. But I, if you can see it, it's worth seeing, and then let yourself think about what's happening to you, what is the purpose of this, is this appropriate? Um I mean, and how has the meaning changed over years, too? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that that's that actually takes us then to our next M, which is Memorial. So you took the one I would have wanted to talk about, but I'm glad you did because I think it is a masterpiece in its way. I'm going to talk about a very weird memorial um, that also is not very vertical. In fact, it's flat. It's on the sidewalk. So if you walk east from the Hauptbahnhof and you head towards the old part of town, uh, but then you kind of deviate. There's a little sort of mini park. It's almost like a... I guess we'd call it a median or something. That's a different kind of memorial we'll talk about. And you hang a left on Cardinal Fallhaberstrasse. You have to know what you're looking for. But on the left side of the road, on the sidewalk. Especially in the winter. <laughs> yeah. There's a chalk, essentially a chalk outline. Is uh, I mean, like I mean, if you come to a crime scene, you have to mark where the body lay. That's what it looks like. And so it's a memorial to a socialist politician named Kurt Eisner. 
So there's this revolution that happens at the very end of World War One in Germany. The Kaiser abdicates. Uh, Social Democrats uh, and, and liberals create this new republic. But they're also, this is in the wake of the Russian Revolution, and you've got communists, and in Germany were called the independent socialists, who were anti-war, more committed to the revolution. They try to take power. And so there's street fighting in Berlin, um, but there's also a revolution in Bavaria. And for a short time, there's a Bavarian so socialist republic headed by Kurt Eisner. But in February of 1919, as he was coming out of his apartment or going in, he was shot by, I think, a right-wing aristocrat. And so that's the memorial, is the chalk outline of Kurt Eisner. And so we actually start there before we get to the Nazi stuff to explain, like, um, it's not just Nazism. There are other kinds of non-bourgeois, non-mainstream, illiberal kinds of politics going on here. And there is violence coming out of World War I on the streets of Berlin. Um, it's not going to be as fun in June because uh, in January, the move you can make is this is a pretty cold climate that has snow and slush. And students don't realize what's happening. And then you just have to kind of use your feet and kick away the snow or ice. And all of a sudden, there's a dead body right there. And it's a very dramatic reveal. In June, I don't think we'll get away with that. But the other memorial that's close by, I'll let you talk about, Sam. That's a very odd memorial. <laughs> so we discovered. there are actually a lot of, like, king statues. Yeah, but... so this is on, on in, the, in the, like, the median area. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, yeah, so it's a row of statues. But one of them, and I can't remember who the actual statue is to. Yeah, it's one of these Wittelsbach kings. I yeah. can't remember. Some, for some reason, this has become a, like, Ongoing, at least since 2013, a memorial to the memory of Michael Jackson, the King of Pop. And there's all these, like, photos and oh. and statues and memorials and letters and flowers that people yeah. leave there for Michael. And I, I just wondered, like, did he did he play a Munich a lot? I have no or? idea. I almost, so we have students do site previews, and I give them a list to pick from. And I almost put the Michael Jackson memorial, except I didn't want to give it away. But I almost wanted someone to research and be able to tell us what's going on. So maybe we need to spend a little time. Yeah. But, like, you look, I looked on Google Maps to get the address, and, like, it actually says Michael Jackson Dink Mall. Like, it, it's... To that extent, it has become officially a part it's of the memorial. So landscape. interesting. We need to it's learn so more. Strange. About so, if that. you know why, let us know, because uh, it's it's a weird memorial. So, what's your? That's that, not that your is not my. Memorial. Is not my no. memorial. My memorial. So, in the same way, my masterpiece was a memorial. My memorial is a museum. Right. Um, and that's because I was thinking about memorial as active memory, mm -hmm. and a museum is a way is an active memory. Um, mm -hmm. And and I, to me, one of the most fascinating things when you're in, um, when you're in. Germany is to think about how do you wrestle with the past mm -hmm. and especially the past of the 20th century. So so uh, the first time we went to Munich, first time I went to Munich, um, they were working on a Nazi documentation center. So the the uh, Munich Documentation Center for the History of National Socialism is the official title in English. Yep. And um, <laughs> And it was so it wasn't open the first time. So and we went to Nuremberg and went to the the one at the playgrounds there. But then the last uh, the last time, last two times we were there, I think it was open. Mm -hmm. um, and so to be able to go through this museum um, and think about how does this and it's a, a museum very specific to the Nazi Party in Germany or excuse me in, in, in Munich. Munich yeah. um, well, obviously in Germany yeah. in Munich. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting because we do this at the end of our tour of the city. So you hear this story as you're walking through it, and then you go to this museum and you see places that we talked about, right. yep. and you get to see how does this, you know, major city, major European city, major German city wrestle with its past, specifically its past. Yep. And I just think it's such a powerful act of memory because the 
The problem with a memorial that's just a like a traditional memorial is it can easily get recontextualized. Like it doesn't have necessarily have context that stays with it. Where the museum is an attempt to tell a story, mm-hmm. um, and I actually I, I yeah I, I found it I found it very interesting because I think that's you know and it makes me think about I, our, our colleague Sarah Shady does a lot of work with uh, has done work with memorials mm-hmm. and constructing memory and how do you deal with um, uh, problematic memorials. Uh, and and the, so I'm always interested in like how do we tell the story and how do we not just um, hit delete on history but say well you know it's interesting to have a German to have these German cities with these Nazi museums in it and not muse- Nazi museum sounds wrong Nazi documentation center to say like yeah. we need to document our past and we need to tell this story even though this is a hard story for us to tell yeah and it's fascinating because memory is really a theme that runs through it like as you get to the end of the exhibit they they move way past the 1940s and they think about how has this been done they talk about um, vandalism of Jewish graves they talk about the synagogue that was destroyed and, and rebuilt. Um, they talk about neo-Nazi rallies. Yeah, I mean, it's. I found a pretty honest grappling with not just German but Bavarian and Munich's mm-hmm. Nazi past, and it was a very long road. Like I remember reading about this when I first was kind of planning the trip. I thought, oh, great, there's a documentation center we can end at. But like, I think it was mostly a funding issue. Um, and then who knows what that betokens? You mm-hmm. know, it's hard to get money, but maybe people didn't really want this to be built. But finally, it was built really close to the site of the old party headquarters, and they kind of left that foundation just out there as its own kind of memorial. Mm-hmm. And it's right next to the house that did host the Munich conference, and it's right next to the parade grounds of Munich where the Nazis would which march march past. So. Yeah, I mean, we kind of stumbled into it. Like, we weren't planning to go in, but we said, well, let's just take some students in if they want to see it. And they just handed us audio guides and said, walk around. So I actually emailed them last week just to let them know we're, we're going to bring a group. And they said, oh, great, it's free. And so this is part of the mission of, like, any educational group. They're not going to put any impediment in. They want you to come in and walk around for two or three hours and see this. And not to diminish this, but they're really nice bathrooms, too. That's like, Because <laughs> it comes at the end of our tour. And, like, that's a thing in Europe yeah, is, okay, think about. Uh, where are you going to get access to their gorgeous yeah. so and i think it's architecturally interesting <laughs> yeah oh, absolutely and, and like there are even a couple moments in the museum where they've set it up so you're then looking out on the former parade grounds yes. and you're supposed to think about what this was like so I, I think it's really well done uh well let's close then with museum so we'll actually come back to world war ii and the holocaust but sam let's talk about art a little bit yeah i i, I have really over the last couple years fallen in love with the uh, pinacotech de modern the the modern art museum mm-hmm. in munich so we take students here to talk about uh, German art. So we go to the Tate Britain to talk about um, largely English art, yeah. you know, pre-World War, post-World War. Uh, and, and this, so this is the, the, the German version of this. And what I find really interesting is, um, so when we're at the, the Bavarian World War I memorial, um, there's a couple other things right next to that. So the, the you didn't talk about the White Rose. or, or no, I just briefly yeah, mentioned it. Like, like, yeah. so, so that memorial's there. And then if you just turn to your left, mm-hmm. there's a, uh, there, there's a Another building there, which housed in the 1930s, um, what was known as the Degenerate Art Exhibit, where the Nazis had collected, and, 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 and from there you can see the other art museum, yep. right? Yep. The the sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the Degenerate Art Museum was sort of all the the art, the kind of leftist artists, um, uh, ex- German expressionist artists that the the Nazis and often Jewish artists, the Nazis didn't like, and they exhibited these in a way to sort of kind of trash this art um, and and talk about how wrong it was and how bad it was. And what's interesting is you go to the Panacotech and like the work, literally works that were in that exhibit are now 
celebrated in this museum, exactly. you know. Um, and and so there's some some really I, I could go through a list of you know uh, you have Kandinsky and Franz Mark and um, Kichner and all, all kinds of people. But well, the advice that I give to students is. When you go to an art museum, I'd say especially any art museum, but especially something that's a little more modern that might be pushing a little bit is when you go into a room that has works of art, stand in the middle of the room as much as you can and just sort of turn around and see which works have a kind of gravity for you, mm-hmm. which works are pulling you towards them. Mm-hmm. And when I went there, I found uh, there, there's a uh, German artist named Max Beckman who I um, has become I, I, one of my favorite painters in terms of in terms, actually, just in terms of his paintings, like I, so I, well, I find when I go to the Panac- the modern Panacotech, um, he's the guy I look for now. And I've been to a couple other museums, and it's like, oh, there's a Beckman here. I want to, I want to look at that. And part of it is, um, I spent a chunk of my life painting myself, and like, there's, there are, are artists who, you're just kind of in awe of their work, and then there are artists who make you want to paint. And Beckman is the latter, and those are the people I'm most interested in. Is there's something about the 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 way he applies paint to a canvas that excites me um this is i guess very personal but like but yeah, i but yeah. like so i look for those things and, they, and it, i mean it's an amazing collection um of sort of early 20th century art and then a lot more modern art beyond that so um you know you can have your quibbles with, <laughs> with no those no we've had good conversations there i mean i like it because we do an assignment it's the last day of the trip for students and we're pushing them into the let's look back at the trip. How do you make meaning? They write a memoir for their final paper, but we actually have them do a response where you have them like think about a piece of art that helps you express what's happened to you, right, on this trip. Mm-hmm. And the, the last thing that happens before we go to this art museum is we go to Dachau. And so this will be my museum. And I mean, how do you express? your response to genocide, the Holocaust. And, and so I don't know how well this works for some students, but there are a few pieces in there where it was interesting to read students' responses. Um, so Dachau, I'll include as my museum, even though it's actually a memorial, so I keep mixing our ends up a little bit. <laughs> uh, so Dachau is the first concentration camp founded in 1933 by the Nazi regime. It's originally for political prisoners, so it's socialist, communist, labor union leaders many of whom also happen to be Jewish. Uh, and it continues to have a really mixed population. And so one interesting thing about the museum that you walk through in the old administrative offices is they talk about the different populations there. It includes Catholic priests. It includes the guy who tried to assassinate Hitler in Munich at the early part of the war. It, um, it talks about medical experimentation. So it's not just the Jewish experience. So I feel like that's something I need to probably do better at underlining for students. This mm-hmm. is not like going to Auschwitz. This was not an extermination camp. But it does give you a little taste of um, the horror of the Holocaust. And it's very sparse. You know, the museum itself, actually, you could spend a lot of, a lot of time there. I think there's a really good film that kind of sets this up that runs in multiple languages throughout the day. Um, there are even kind of memorial pieces there as so they talk about memory. But then on the grounds itself, most of it has been left demolished. So it was actually used for a variety of purposes after the war. You know, it was used as a displaced persons camp for a while. There was actually a movie theater there for a while. Um, There's a convent, uh, I think Carmelite community at the far end of the camp. And then there are these four religious uh, memorials. There's a Jewish memorial. Catholic, Protestant, and then a Russian Orthodox one kind of in the woods. And then you cross this creek and you come to the um, the crematorium. You come to a few unmarked graves as well. 
But there's only like, they recreated one barracks, just kind of in the middle of this, just to let you see what it was like. But otherwise, it's very sparse, and you just kind of walk around by yourself from the cold. Again, I kind of feel like maybe June isn't going to be I'm really effective. curious to see the what June feels like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe what I'll do is underscore the kind of, um, I mean, the horror of it, right? I mean, because the other thing you notice is it's right in the town of Dachau. Mm-hmm. You, you take a kind of, uh, I mean, it's really just a, an S-Bahn. You take a, a train out there, take a bus, and you're in this residential neighborhood, and all of a sudden you're at Dachau. I mean, you could really walk if you wanted to. And so it confronts you with the horror amidst just the mundane, right? There, there's no, like, Auschwitz is different. I've never been, but I know enough, like, you actually have to go to Auschwitz, mm-hmm. right? Dachau confronts you with the question of how much did Germans know what was going on in the 30s and 40s and how mm-hmm. much willful ignorance was there and how much assent was there or dissent? Because they also had sub camps. Like they would take Dachau prisoners and send them like to the Hauptbahnhof. They would reconstruct railways in the middle of World War II. So like there was slave labor in the middle of Munich in the midst of the Nazi regime and of the Second World War. So I, I think it's just very, I mean, really the whole thing is museum in that sense. I mean, it's it's trying to curate this experience. Um, I think the Memorial Chapel is really fascinating in their own right. And it asks, like, I mean, you almost have to ask, like, who gets to do this? Like, mm-hmm. it's not surprising and certainly not inappropriate that there's a Jewish chapel that I, mean, I think is pretty powerful. I think the Catholic chapel is as well. We actually end in the Protestant chapel, which was inaugurated by Martin Niemöller, the great pastor who had actually supported the Nazis, become a confessing church leader, and actually was an inmate at Dachau in, for a few years. And it never quite feels like right. Like, should we be doing like a Christian worship service of some kind? So the last time we did, I actually read some stuff about Jewish theology and, and wrestling with the absence of God in Auschwitz. And, and I, we've had students say, like, they're not quite sure they should try to make meaning of this too quickly. And mm-hmm. they don't want to wrap it up in a pat prayer and scripture bow right like maybe you just kind of need to feel at a loss yeah and i will say it's definitely the place where we we separate the most every like you will it's you will often see people just walking by them because it's a big ground so like you can kind of walk around by yourself and 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 that seems like the appropriate response i will say that the first time we went there I never wanted to know the German language as much as I did. There was a school group, and like and I was just because they happened to be going where I was going. Like I was with them for chunks of this, and I wanted to know what the teacher was saying, and I wanted to know like how did the. I mean, they were kids. They were, I don't know, twelve, thirteen, and yeah. fifteen. I don't know, but it was it was just fascinating. Like again, thinking about wrestling with with your own history. Like it's it was really really interesting, um, and I just like I, I desperately wanted to like be able to listen in and know what they were saying. And and the hard thing is, like, they were acting like 12-year-olds, too. Which they should. exactly what a school field trip should be like at that age. And and you're there thinking, like, this is the sacred place and you need to be reverent. And it's a good reminder, like, this is just, in a sense, part of not daily life, but fairly ordinary in Germany. Like, in the same way that my kids are going to Fort Snelling in a couple weeks, right? And they'll, I think they'll grapple with some complexity there about like the Native American experience, mm-hmm. right, in colonization. But if you're German, you know, I mean, even though this is generations removed, you're still living with this history, and it's just a basic part of your educational experience. So anyway, I mean, I think this is a good segue into the last thing we want to do, which is talk about what do you do when you travel? Because there are a lot of ways to go different places, right? And I think 
I mean, we do this ourselves. We're not acting all holier than thou. But a lot of Americans experience travel as tourism, right? which is a very, I, mean, I don't know if it's the only place. I'm sure the Romans did this and the Greeks did this. But, like, it's a very Victorian experience. Like, it's, you have the means to go somewhere, maybe a place where your pound or your dollar stretches a while. And you're basically going to go live at the same standard of living. Like, um, you expect hotels to reproduce your lifestyle. You ex- I mean, you expect to be catered to, right? And you don't really go to be changed. You go to, like, check it off a list or you go because it's warmer or you go because it's what you do. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think that is part of this trip. Like, I don't want to make it sound people don't go as tourists because I think that's impossible mm-hmm. for Americans to do. And we're going to be way. in some really fun places. And you should enjoy it. And you should feel comfortable and safe, right? Like, that... At the same time, I hope something else happens. So there are a couple of maybe metaphors we use. I want to start with one you gave us, Sam. And I think it was the first trip. I mean, you've talked about this in other contexts when you had done off-campus study. Um, but we, on the first trip on the Western Front, we actually asked to stop at a church. And we had brought some bread and I think we got some grape juice somewhere. We actually did communion together and improvised a little service. And I asked you to do a little meditation. You talked about being wounded. Yeah, which is inter- I mean, which is a, an interesting word to think about when you're thinking about a war where there were, you know, millions of wounded. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's not what I meant by it. Um, uh, this this idea goes back to something I heard at a, a Bethel a convocation chapel when I was a student. Uh, there was a man named Randall Balmer, who's a, a religious historian, um, was talking, and he was talking about he was kind of giving talking about the story of his life a little bit. Um, but he started with reading the story, uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, of Jacob wrestling with the angel. And uh, they wrestled throughout the night. And, and um, part of the, the the thing is, I mean, Jacob, uh, that's when he gets the name Israel because he, you know, he struggles and does not get, and does not quit. And he, um, and, and he is wounded by the angel. And so there's the idea that Jacob has this transformation or this powerful experience but he walks away with a limp mm-hmm. like he's affected by it mm-hmm. it it changes him and the change is this noticeable thing and it's not always just a uh when we think transformation we tend to think positive transfer right. like like right. it's a it's a wound too it's there's a there are scars that come from this and that those aren't necessarily always the worst things i mean i i walked away from hearing balmer say that and my my big fear in life is that I wouldn't be affected by the things that happened to me, mm-hmm. which is a weird thing to say because it, I mean, it feels like you're just like, I hope that I get through this unscathed. And I decided that day, like, I, I want to be I want to be affected by the things that happened to me. Um, and, and so when I when we talk with the students about a trip like this is like it's it's easy to look at this like like you were talking about as kind of tourism as a trip. And we saw some interesting things and look at the stories we have to tell. But I can't I personally can't go to these cemeteries and there's a reason we keep talking about them without feeling like I'm not the same anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 impacted by it and and I'm I'm wounded by it. I I can't I can't tell the same stories the way I told them before. I and and part of part of the wound too is I have I have a a metaphorical limp like I I and and so it's noticeable like I I want to talk about these things. You know, I want to talk about uh the experience that I had there. And and that's our hope too, is that students, this isn't just a, this thing that they did and they learned some stuff, but like, how does this change the way you look at the world? Yep. You know? So, so I, I, you know, that, that is, I think when you study history and especially when you study history on location, like embrace the idea of being impacted by, um, 
by what you're experiencing and and even when those things are are maybe especially when those things are difficult right right. i mean i think part of our job as teachers and you know maybe this is true of june as well but certainly with like 19 20 year olds i think it's natural for humans to want to protect themselves from being wounded right Mm -hmm. like i mean and so it's our our most basic instinct yeah right and so you know you um cover yourself in humor right you you make light of situations or you cloak yourself in cynicism um or you just kind of let yourself be distracted right instead and so i I feel a lot of what we're trying to do now as we talk with students as we design a reading packet design assignments then as we're on the trip is to kind of hold their hand and and say like we're gonna we're gonna wound you a little bit and and partly that's by like cultivating a sense of empathy for people cultivating a sense of you're very similar to these people but you're also very different to them and then just giving them experiences where like it's really out of our hands at that point like once we're at DACA we're not doing much teaching but by that point you know it's the end of the trip you know they probably want to be done with it but at that point I think they're kind of accustomed to this notion and you can't be unaffected I don't think by it the other way we think about travel and you know as a Christian institution I I think we both approach this we're accustomed to integrating faith and learning, right? So it's hard for us not to do this. And so what is the basic Christian mode of travel but pilgrimage? And, like, we go to certain churches on this trip, but that's not really what we mean. Like, we're going to places that are holy and also profane often because it's about war and it's about genocide for the most part. And it's about manipulation and exploitation and cruelty, but they're also sacred. Like people made in the image of God have lived and died in these places. And um, I, don't know, I, I don't think we do too much with it. We kind of introduce this idea, maybe give them a couple of prompts to think about it, but then just kind of trust it'll work. But I like the idea because it, I mean, it's a way of embodying the notion that we are sojourners on this world. Like that is to me the chief value of pilgrimage. It's not that... I don't believe necessarily like I'm getting any kind of like spiritual energy from this necessarily, but it is reminding me like to live lightly in this world, Mm -hmm. you know, and so being taken out of my national identity, my physical, um, the things I'm used to, my routine here, my commute and being put in a very different place, I think helps remind me of, um, you know, we are aliens and exiles in this world, right? And, And at the same time, we're also being taken out of our time because it's a history trip and a history class. And it kind of reinforces that same notion. I would say another thing with pilgrimage, especially if we're thinking about sort of the medieval idea of pilgrimage, is most people who went on pilgrimage, that's the only time they ever traveled. Yeah. Right? So the other thing that this does, along with everything you said, is it helps you realize the world is smaller than you think and we are more connected than you think. Because otherwise these these places that we go become – these sacred sites because they become these mysterious things you read about but like once you go there the world becomes smaller mm-hmm. and that's not the worst thing in the world it's not the worst thing in the world to make the f- sense how small the world is to sense how interconnected we are even though especially as Americans all this stuff is on the other side of an yeah. ocean we can't imagine traversing but in fact we can imagine traversing it yeah. and I remember the first time that I went to Europe was in 2005 and I remember distinctly getting well, before we got on the train to go to the con that we were in London and I remember saying goodbye to London and thinking I'll never be here again mm-hmm. this is going to be my like fifth mm-hmm. and sixth trips to London in, in you know in a matter of 12 or 13 years like 
the world is smaller than I thought it was. Right. And I probably need to expand it more. Well, it's why it's so interesting for me that I've now stumbled into doing a Charles Lindbergh biography, right? Because that's what facilitates this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that, you know, we could talk more about that. That'll be season five. That's right. We're doing. Okay, but we should Lindbergh wrap up because we have a class to get to. Um, so I have to say our trip is pretty much closed. I've got 22. I, if you apply now, I can probably squeeze in two more. But in the middle of this month, I need to start making a hotel reservation. So if you're interested, you can get a hold of us. Uh, if it's not going to work this time, I would imagine we will come back and do this trip another time within, say, two to three years. So maybe the best thing you can do is send me an email. Uh, I can put you on a list. Or if you just want to follow the Facebook page for Pietist Schoolman Travel, that way you would, you know, this would show up in your timeline as we start moving towards another trip or other trips we do. Uh, you can also look for the travel page at my Pietist Schoolman site. I blog there two or three times a week, plus every Tuesday at the Patheos blog, The Anxious Bench. The Pietist Schoolman podcast can be found live from AC Second Podcast Network and the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode and the season were engineered by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garrett. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas and bon voyage. On the run, on the run, hear them calling you and me. Every son of liberty, hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud her boy's in line. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums rum coming everywhere. So prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back. Till it's over, over there.